you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. What is digital ethnography? How difficult is it to learn to use a 3D game creation engine? How would maker schools change how we do education? And why are initiation rituals a critical rite of passage into a society? Strap yourself in for the answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. We got snow in the mountains again. Debbie didn't get snow on her daffodils yet, which she says has happened every year here. And I'm now still getting to enjoy the opportunity to start a fire early every morning before the sunrise. There's just something very peaceful and captivating about starting my day off with this little ritual. Speaking of rituals, today's guest Michael Wesh advocates the adoption of some curious rituals. Keep your headphones in or your Bluetooth synced up because today's podcast has enough quotable ideas to really stir your noodles. Before we get started, though, I'd like to take a moment to give a great big shout out to Dr. Sonia Christian, the Bakersfield College President, and Todd Costin, the Bakersfield College Director for Information Services, for helping us line up today's interview with Michael Wesh. We also want to give a great big thank you to Dr. Bill Mosley at Bakersfield College for inviting us to give a couple of presentations at the conference. Let's listen in now to the conversation Michael and I had recently at the 2015 Bakersfield College Conference on Learning Technologies. So my guest today is Michael Wesh, who is a professor of cultural anthropology at Kansas State University. And Michael studies digital ethnography, and we'll dig, dig into that a little bit. And he's specifically interested in finding new types of stories with these uh, media and to use this as a way of inciting or inspiring empathy. Uh, Michael, tell us a little bit more about uh, your interest in these topics. So I think anytime a new technology comes along, all kinds of new opportunities emerge. And it's kind of exciting to be right out on the front end of that to explore what those opportunities might be. So right now, just over the last few months, I discovered how easy it is to create video games. Like I didn't realize that it was actually pretty easy to create video games. Things like Unity 3D or Unreal Engine really make video game editing, you know, a lot more like drag and drop kind of stuff. And it reminds me of when I first learned to edit video. I, it was such a mystery to me, like how videos were made. And then, you know, I opened up Final Cut for the first time, and like it was like the late 90s, I think. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is easy. You know, you just like <laughs> drag this stuff and you crop it here. And, and video games are now to that level. Uh, as sophisticated as they are, you know, it really is a lot of drag and drop. And, you know, you take a, a, an element in there and you stretch it and you make it look like you want it to look. And then you want to add animations and so on. You just go into this editor and you're not using code. You're thinking in terms of code, but you don't actually have to know the code. You just have to, you know, it's a series of essentially boxes, drop-down menus, and you select what you want to have happen, and you draw the little pipes between different elements, and 
then you have an event, <laughs> you know, and things happen in your game. So that was the thing I just discovered, like, okay, this this is easy. Uh, it's powerful. The the types of imagery we can create are photorealistic. As an anthropologist, this is really exciting because now you can create things, you know, from other cultures or in even from the past that can be photorealistic and have people actually walk through them. You can create different types of interactive objects. So one of the things we're thinking about is taking oral histories and allowing people to walk through that person's childhood. You know, so they're talking about their childhood. Let's just put the viewer in the person's childhood with their house and their school. Let them walk around those environments and pick up objects. And as they pick up those objects, the story that is about that object could be triggered. So for example, like uh, it might be uh, as simple as like a you know a, a vase or something, and this person bought that vase on their honeymoon. And so when you pick up the vase, the story of the honeymoon immediately comes to mind, and you hear this elder talking about their their past. Uh, we just think it'd be an amazing way to. Let uh, me talk about building empathy. Uh, it just feel, lets you feel more connected to the person rather than just hearing an oral story. Just you know, on its own, you get the full experience. So I guess I wish you had been around. Oh, <laughs> 20, 30 years ago, because <laughs> my grandma actually grew up in Nebraska. Oh, really? Yeah, and she tells the story about their their mule Jack, and you know how she was the oldest of three girls. Yeah. And her dad, their, her parents never had any boys, and so she was the oldest, and so she always got all the hard work and yeah. all the you know dirty chores, and she had lots of lots of stories about working on the farm. Yeah. And it would have been interesting to capture some of that because yeah. I heard a lot of the stories, but now it's kind of this faded memory yeah. that I can't really and access I have, very clearly. I have some of the same regrets, and so one of the things I'm doing is going back to pictures of the land that we homesteaded as a family, you know, 120 years ago, and I'm trying to recreate that in the game, and then I'll at least be able to bring, you know, all the elders are have passed, but you know, their kids are still here, so maybe some stories will come back if I were able to walk them through those things. You mentioned. Uh, the mule, I just want to mention this. So, for example, that sounds hard, right? Oh, gosh, you have a mule in there. How are you going to make, make that in a game? Like, that sounds, you have to, like, go into 3DS Max and create this really complicated thing. You actually don't. You can go online and look for, you know, the file. Like, somebody else has probably already created a mule, or they created something a lot like a mule. And you can download it for free, and you can load it into your editor and just tweak it a little bit if you want. So I think we're at this moment where games are, like, kind of where we were with video about, oh, I'd say about 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago. I would take it back to like what I call the Gary Brolsma moment. The Gary Brolsma moment is a moment where this, Gary Brolsma is kind of this nerdy guy in New Jersey, and he's dancing to this Numa Numa video, and he uploads it to Newgrounds, which was like this geeky forum. And it was kind of hard to do, to upload video, and it was hard to watch it. It didn't always work, you know, because like formats and all that. And... Uh, a few months later, YouTube was launched, and Gary Brolsma's video was going viral, and thousands of people joined in on YouTube because it was so easy, and they started doing the Gary Brolsma dance, you know. <laughs> and I think that's where we are with video games right now. I mean, the floodgates are about to open. It's Everybody's going to start to realize, like, oh, this is easy. You're going to start to see things like... There's already a few YouTube-like gaming things where you can go online and you just click it and you play it and these a lot of these games are actually created by 
ordinary Joes, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think we're really close, though, to like something that's clean and always works, the way YouTube is clean and always works. And, and uh, you're going to have all these remixing possibilities. I don't know how far that'll go, but I, I don't think it's impossible to imagine a scenario where you could actually take popular games and people will find ways to essentially take characters out of popular games or recreate them, put them out online for free. People can then bring those characters into their games and create remixes of like various games. You know, so you could have like a mashup of <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like Super Mario's and Doom combined. Like, <laughs> you know, like in like this fest of thought about nostalgia. Doom a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of friends. Just, I, I, now I have now I have the images going. Yeah. <laughs> the hallways all going through my brain. <laughs> yeah. Now people are gonna do that stuff and. It's going to be, and I think there will also be a huge crossover here because it's not just going to be things we think of as games. Like, game engines are so good at simulating things. The architecture world is really getting into this right now because you can throw in your architecture plans and then take your client, like, on a walking tour of the place you haven't built yet, you know, by putting, you essentially build a first-person shooter, take out the gun. <laughs> you know, you don't use a gun in it. And you let them walk through the house you're about to build for them. It's it's so easy. I, I did it just last week. My I have an architect, and he's working on a piece of our house, and I said, hey, just send me the file. And I just threw it in Unreal, and I can walk around this house, this addition that we haven't built yet. <laughs> you know, so like, it's amazing. Uh, you can paint the walls first. Oh, I can paint them in the in your, Unreal. Your 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 wife would appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of things. That's just one more example. I mean, but think about the the line between movies and games is going to grow very thin. You already have people at Microsoft who are looking at using the Kinect and the Xbox, and they're doing things as subtle as I mean, there's a lot going on there. They're trying to measure, like, heartbeat and all kinds of stuff, like your overall reaction. But even just with the Kinect, which is just a visual device, they're working on a thing now where if they see the viewer lean in like this, it could be a simple gesture to say, like, I want in on this. Like, I want to control a little piece. And they would actually have very, like, multiple versions of a single movie. And the moment you move in, you could actually, like, start to change things around. Or perhaps... You know, 360 cameras are becoming more common. You might see a lot of things filmed in 360. Um, and you'd be able to lean in and, and, and look around, essentially, right? And as you turn your head, you know, you'd actually get this sort of viewing around. Of course, all that will be created for the Oculus Rift that's coming out, Google Cardboard. There's a lot happening right now in the world of storytelling that's very exciting in those ways. So I can't help thinking about this and... Now I have an anthropologist here to ask my question, who has experience. Because I've been watching uh, YouTube and website, you know, creation of things. You know, I mean, I'm, um, we have a WordPress site, so we understand how that runs. And as I look at this, it's becoming easier and easier to tell a story, but it's becoming harder and harder for anyone to, to know whether anyone's hearing it. Mm. I, I don't know any better way to say this. I mean, two, two things, sort of, what does that mean? which may be harder to answer, and as these things proliferate, well, what, is that, what does that kind of do to the society? Oh, there's some... I mean, there, you're hitting on some pretty dark sort of edges of this thing, right? It's like, uh, you look at some of this, it's like, oh, this is so exciting, you can do all these things. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's this old 
idea of the attention economy, which is it's old hat now, but it's very much a real thing, and everybody's competing for attention. And now you're getting where people are just getting better at it, and there's a whole professionalization of you know viral marketing and so on. You know, for example, like Upworthy and some of these other places have essentially pioneered new ways of drawing attention, uh, mostly like through headline generation. So like Upworthy will create 25 headlines for a single video and then they'll put them out on the web and different regions will get different headlines and they just see which one is doing the best and then that's the one that survives. It's like a survival of the fittest algorithm that essentially launches the best headline to the top. And of course the best one is often deceiving, it's not actually, you're clicking on it because you're expecting one thing. Really common things that are now used to draw people in are like red circles and arrows in ambiguous clips, right? So you'll go on Facebook and it'll be like some ambiguous clip of a nature scene and it'll have a big red circle and an arrow to it and you're like, you'll never guess what happened here and you're just like, oh, now I have to click, you know? <laughs> and you click and it's just some crap, you know, you don't want to see it. And that's kind of what's happening. Like, it's like, you know, it's a real violation of our attention and and they do it because they want eyeballs and you know it's sometimes we've made videos where um, this has happened where uh, we created a video recently and, it, and we thought it was great video we really thought it was going to go viral and uh, we got like 5,000 views which is not bad but not the kind of viral hit we thought it would be and then the somebody else you know one of these viral engines saw it and picked it up and they retitled it and it was one of these things that we had done at the retirement community and their title that got us an extra 40,000 hits or something like that basically insinuated that our students were sleeping with elders <laughs> you know like this this is how you this is how you get the views right like it's something is crazy so there is some of this like dark cloud of like i think it's harder for the small producer to break through there's like you know it's it's kind of saturated at the same time, there are these huge niche markets now where if you have a specific niche that, that nobody's created for yet, like if you create stories and content for that niche, like you can you can definitely dominate a niche. And sometimes those niches are a lot bigger than you think, and people can build a whole career off of that. Now, I, because we're a small company, I think about those things, and I hadn't ever thought of it as violation of someone's attention. That's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's, a, little dis that's a little disturbing because you see a lot of that. And you, yeah. you read this stuff and you're like, okay, well, well, I, I want people to read my stuff. Right. And, and if, ever, if somebody else is doing it, it's like this, you know, it's this basic principle. Like somebody else is doing it, you have to do it because otherwise you're totally losing out. Yeah. No, that is kind of dark. Maybe we'll change this up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the other things we had talked about before we started the interview was this idea you have of a maker school. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a particular interest in that because I'm, I'm a maker and a lot of what we do is around the idea of making. But you're coming at it with a much different viewpoint than I would come at it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, w I, w I would like to start a maker school because I love working with my hands and I love making things and I can't imagine why anyone else would not want to do that. Mm-hmm. But you have a different perspective. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, for one, like a lot of people are terrified of using their hands, and <laughs> and that's actually exactly why it has to happen. I mean, I feel like our higher education, it's kind of literally broken, and it's breaking people, in the sense that it's become this thing where it's all about the head, and everything is happening in the mind space up here, and it becomes highly intellectual and highly abstract, 
and very few get that opportunity to take all that stuff and make it into something tangible. And because I mean, we have these tremendous dropout rates, you know, gosh, uh, something like only 56% actually make it through who start college. I wonder, you know, what percentage of that others who are leaving might have been turned on if they had actually been able to build something with their hands earlier on. And perhaps some of those people are the type of people who, like, have a passion and a skill for that, that thing, and we're losing them. And I think that's a shame. I think there's a really wonderful possibility to meld what you might call the liberal arts, like this traditional liberal arts, with a practical arts education. And, you know, let's get the people who are really good at analyzing Plato to get their hands dirty. And let's get the folks who are good at, with their hands to contemplate these higher ideas. And I think when you start doing both of those things at once, and if you can find ways to connect them, uh, you're going to see some really great things. I think you're going to make better people. <laughs> you know, That's what this is all really all about. It's about making better people. Well, it's interesting because you, you're sort of talking about me. I, I I mean, I barely squeaked through with a PhD, you know, in physics, not because I didn't have the ability necessarily, but because I think at some level I was having trouble feeling like it mattered. Yeah. And I took all these classes, and it was. It was all up here. It was all in the head. It was, you know, analyzing equations, and, you, you know, and that was supposed to be connected to meaning somewhere, but, I mean... After about the third page of trying to analyze something or writing down some Hamiltonian and then squeezing out, <laughs> you know, the you know the equations of motion out of this, I mean, you kind of lose what's happening. You yeah. lose the perspective of why you should care about this anymore. And I was fortunate because in my very first year, I started in the lab. I didn't I didn't mm -hmm. you know take the typical path. I knew the professor I wanted to work with, and I just started the first year working in his lab. And I loved working in the lab so much kind of kept me engaged enough not to bail on the system because yeah. I really thought about it you know around you know two and a half three years I was ready to jump ship because I didn't see me going anywhere with this and I was really stuck mm -hmm. and I had you know a, a moment where I decided you know what I'm just going to figure out how to finish this mm -hmm. and then when I did that it was within a year maybe a year and a half I realized I was a researcher but it was because I was working in the lab with my hands yeah. It was the only place I felt like I was actually doing something meaningful and where I felt competent. I actually didn't feel very competent, you know, you know, putting hand to paper because <laughs> so many of my classmates were really good. Yeah. I mean, they came from, you know, they came from Europe or India or, mm -hmm. you know, some from China, and they just had such a full preparation coming in. Mm -hmm. And I came straight from an undergraduate degree in the U.S., and we do so-so, it depends, yeah. you know, but, but the competition, you know, of you know, other nations, you know, sending their best and brightest here to oh, take yeah. a PhD. And I just didn't, I didn't feel able mm -hmm. to, to attack that. And so the idea of having a space where I could yeah. learn with my hands next to someone, that same person, because I did learn a lot from these mm -hmm. other guys, but, but it was working side by side with them when I did. And it yeah. wasn't because we were in these classes, you know, facing yeah. frontwards toward the board. Yeah. And I think the really beautiful thing about the maker movement itself is the sort of attitude it creates in people who become makers. I mean, they sort of take on this attitude that there will be no black boxes. I will understand everything. <laughs> and I will, <laughs> I will pull it apart, and I will understand it, and I will make it again in a different way. You know, and, and I think there are so many black boxes in our society, and we really are in a place now where we're in danger of having some very powerful black boxes that if we don't understand them, 
could lead us astray. I mean, we're, we're living in an algorithmic world where algorithms are starting to be a part of our everyday life. They're shaping what we see on the internet, you know, through search engine algorithm or the Facebook algorithm that filters what comes to the top to everything, you know, Wall Street and everything else is ran on algorithms now. And I just think there has to be some sort of public understanding of how this works. And the maker movement, in many, way, many ways, kind of forces you into understanding at least some basics of that. But I really like the idea of cutting through and eliminating a lot of the black boxes. And some of these black boxes are, you know, there's a the computer world, but there's also things like, how is this chair made? You know, like, <laughs> like, and why don't I know how it was made? Like, there's all these things in my life that I'm disconnected from, and they just in, become invisible to me, and they, they're they not interesting to me because I they're just there. But the moment you start to understand how something is made, you can actually look at this chair, and you're like, oh, that's interesting how they, you know, they decided to do this instead of that, and that's kind of cool. And, 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 you know, even something as simple as, learning to weld or anything like that, it just demystifies a lot of things. You know, like, how did they make these things out of metal? Like, the moment you start to weld, then you're like, oh, wait, like, I'm starting to see how this works, and it's not impossible. Like, people can do this, you know? It's interesting that you use that word demystify, because I use that all the time when I'm talking about the technology, and I will actually will bring that up this, this afternoon in my, in my talk, because I feel like Arduino 3D printing and a few other things are this, these interesting bridges between a world which is very misunderstood mm -hmm. by the society and the society. And to understand that, that they're not as far apart as people think. Yeah. And the path there doesn't start by going to a class and getting all this knowledge in your head. It actually starts by sitting in front of a computer, flipping it up, plugging the Arduino into the computer, and sticking an LED in it, and then fighting <laughs> with the IDE to see if you can make it blink. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I mean, I can get you know uh, fourth graders through you know, 40-year-olds yeah. doing this within a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And I can get them past that first, okay, that wasn't as hard as I thought. Yep. And we actually had this this happen yesterday in my wife's class because she does she teaches community college. Mm -hmm. And we just happened to do this just yesterday. And did I mention the celery? Yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah, I think not, I did Not that. in the podcast. Not, but not in the podcast, uh, but we'll, we'll put a link to that so people <laughs> can see that. Yeah. I'm trying to connect the two worlds, and, and I'm mashing them up in ways that people might not, expect, and, I, and I, I can't take a lot of credit for that, I actually steal my best ideas from other people, <laughs> and to give them, you know, this view of behind the curtain, so we pull the curtain yeah, back, absolutely. we demystify this, and they can look across, and they may, they may decide, you know what, that looks interesting, but I have this other, this other life, this other world, mm -hmm. but you know what, there's, you know, there's, there's a 10% or 15% of those people that look across and they're like, wow, I did not know that was over there. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know I could get across. And, and it's like suddenly you open up the secret passageway yeah. of learning for people. Yeah. And um, you've heard of Code Academy? Mm -hmm. My wife introduced that in one of her classes. And there's a student that since two days ago has done like 50 or 70 lessons hmm. on the Code Academy because he just suddenly got very interested. Yeah. I think she just changed his life just by opening up the secret Absolutely. passage across. And there's a lot of things like that. And... The reality is the students who are going to be successful are going to be those who stop playing this game of, you know, let's get the grades and, like, fulfill all the requirements, and they find some little passion that they're willing to grind away on and, you know, do 70 lessons <laughs> in two days. Like, I just, I just interviewed a student a couple days ago, and 
he said, you know, what he realized that he didn't know 10 years ago when he was a student of mine was that, you know, there, there was this thing that he was doing back then that kept him from his deadlines, that kept him from getting that paper in. And what he's realized now is like, if every person could just find what that thing is that they can't help but keep doing, even though they're missing <laughs> their deadlines, <laughs> like that's the thing they should be doing, or at least integrated into their career. And, you know, he said that, and I started thinking about all my students over the last 10 years and those who have been successful. And they all had something that seemed like a distraction that they were very passionate about. And it's in some way been incorporated and made them who they are today. And like made them unique and different and and built their career. You know, and that's what the maker movement can do is it can show you, I think it just, it's a different type of learning that you engage in, It's which is real, it's tangible, it's it's deep learning, right? It's like it's, if you don't actually learn it, your thing's not going to work and it's not going to look right. So there's something really awesome about that, the immediate there's like an immediate feedback mechanism there, you know, either it works or it doesn't, and you have to try again, uh, you know. I love that about it, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask one of the questions we normally get to in the podcast, because and you're uniquely positioned to answer this, and you've touched on it in several points in our conversation, but in the digital world we live in, with YouTube and with now gaming uh, engines becoming this thing where we can start contributing more to this conversation, what does it mean in that environment to be you know, what we consider educated? Well, I would never want somebody to assume they are educated. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I would like rather that. them realize that there's a lot of mystery out there. And I think that maybe that's what being educated is. It's sort of like the Socrates who, like, knows that he doesn't know, right? And not you can't just know that you don't know. You also have to, like, have a passion and curiosity and wonder and all those types of things that will like lead you out into that world. I mean, it is amazing what you can learn on YouTube if <laughs> you care. I mean, it's like, I mean, I feel like I am almost unnecessary as a professor except to inspire students to get to the point where they can use the internet to learn on their own. <laughs> you know, like, like my main job seems to be to like tell them I'm not necessary. And convince them that I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm still like, I can be a mentor or whatever, but there's still some role there, I suppose. But gosh, if you could just get all the students to realize that they can learn on their own, you know, it sets them off on a different path. No, that your 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 little lineup there on in the presentation. You know, what do I have to do to pass the test? Yeah. yeah my my wife has a video she shows every semester about that, and it. You know, that's such a distraction from, you know, why am I actually here? Mm -hmm. And so many students miss the, you know, learning is fun. They miss the, well, I'm learning because, well, fill in the blank. That's a very personal reason. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'd like, I'd like to see that. And you have some experience doing that. How do, how do we do that? How do we start pulling that back out of students? Uh, it's, I mean, it's very different for each student. Um, but I, but I mean, that comes back to my passion for, you know, maker colleges that I find that project-based learning works really well, you know, sort of forcing students into doing, uh, uh, let's, let's back up, so, you know, force them into it, and that's the trick. <laughs> it's like, how do you, how do you create the right project that gets them deeply engaged, or create the, f create an environment in which they can create their own project 
that that gets them deeply engaged, and that is very challenging. I I have like a set of kind of I don't know tests that I give myself whenever I design a project for students. One test is that it has to be real, and the test for realness is like, do I know the solution to this problem, or do I know the best way to make this thing? And or if I for doing a documentary. Do I have a solid vision of what it's going to look like in the end? And if the answer is yes, then that's not actually a real problem <laughs> because <laughs> I've already got it, and now it's a game of like, guess what the professor's thinking, and see if you can do what the professor wants. That's not authentic. So a real question or problem or project is one where I don't have the final vision. I don't know the answer. That's a real one. The second test is for relevance, and the relevance test is would they do it if no grade was attached? Will they do it beyond the semester if the semester ends and they're not done? That's a tall order. That is. But that's what I, that's the standard, you know, and, and I don't know that I've ever reached, and I think I have. I think, I think some of the projects we've done where we do like documentaries in this retirement community, like the students get deeply engaged and involved and they actually have worked into the summer on occasion for that. So, so I think I've achieved it on that one, but usually, you know, you fall short on that one. That's really hard. And it's also, you know, students have a lot of competing commitments, you know, so they kind of are trusting you that whatever you're doing is only going to take 16 weeks. <laughs> but in but in a make college, maybe maybe the rules are different. Absolutely. I think they should be. I think the fun thing about thinking about a maker college and the thing that I enjoy is getting people together and say like let's wipe the all the rules out and like how does this look without all the rules and you know one of the big things that comes up is like well the semester system like why are we doing semesters it doesn't make sense why not just have you know competency based kind of system where you can kind of level up or a lot of different ideas so people can go through faster they go through slower but see then you run into the problem of of a uh, couple things one is there's something valuable about everybody going through something together. And when you start to individualize, people start to get separated out a bit. That's a bit of a problem. It can be solved by creating problems where more advanced people in one area can connect with more advanced people in another area and so on. But there's also developmental issues, like especially when you get into the liberal arts side of this. In the practical arts, you know, there can be a competency and a skill, and you just get it, and you got it, and you can move on, and let's let them go as fast as they can go. In the liberal arts, there's always going to be, you know, a 16-year-old is just going to look at the history of thought differently than a 21-year-old. And they're going to ask different questions. They're going to, you know, approach it in different ways. And I think there's something very valuable to engaging, say, a 19-year-old with uh, the history of thought or a 20-year-old with a, world, a, a course on global thoughts and religions and so on that is going to strike them very differently than it would have when they were younger. So I would, I would hesitate to say like, oh yeah, you can master world, a world religions class at age 16. You can test out of it at age 16, check the box, and you're out. I'm like, no, I, th I want students to wrestle with that when they're 20 and they're really thinking about who they are and who they're going to become. When they're 16, they, they might really just see it as like a bunch of stuff to memorize. And that's a very different way of approaching a class like that. So, so that's, I don't know, those are challenging questions, you know. Well, the, uh, the tinkerer in me says that we just have to go make a college, put some students in it, <laughs> some teachers, and find out what happens. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, I'd like to, to wrap this up, but the last question we always like to ask 
is what is the purpose of an education? You have kind of a unique perspective on that as an anthropologist. You know, so looking across, you know, the globe, looking across time, what do you see as the purpose of it? Uh, to me, it's obvious, and I think people miss it all the time. I mean, around the world, if you look at what education is and has been, it's always been an initiation ritual into the society. I mean, that's all cultures around the world have done these initiations for as long as we know. And initiations are serious business. And they are not they are not just memorizing a bunch of stuff and learning a few skills. They are a total transformation of the being, <laughs> you know? And it, it's so, it's so profound that in most cultures, you know, you have to follow all these taboos like you have to disappear from society, you might have to fast and not drink any water for several days. You might have to go into the forest and take a hallucinogen and like have like a transformational experience. I mean, we don't do any of that (laughs) 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 or anything like it. And it's kind of embarrassing and, you know, just really sets everybody up for failure. I think like, I think we need something really transformational. So I think of education as, as a transformational experience. And in our society, as we've talked about, what that has to mean is taking them from people who see the world in black and white to people who see all the complexity, they embrace it, they want to learn more, and they want to make something. They want to make, they want to be world makers. You want to transfer them from being like just people who are kind of like in the world to people who make the world. And that is, that's transformational. That's not just a bunch of skills or you know, a bunch of knowledge, that's that's a change of being. So that it is, and I don't think we could end any better than that, so I think we're going to stop it here. Thank you so much for taking some time to interview for our audience. And uh, what is the best way for our audience to get in touch with you? Uh, Twitter, mwesh, or email, <laughs> mwesh at kstate.edu. Those are probably the best ways. All right, well, we'll link that up in the show show notes. Thank you so much, Michael, for taking some time to interview with us. Great, thank you. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast. Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students?